This is Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us for a look at uh, with Nightlife News Breakdown is Michael Williams, editor of The Monthly. Uh, Michael, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Good evening. Pleasure to be back. The federal government's to unveil its optimal pathway, its words, for nuclear-powered submarines later this month. And opposition leader Peter Dutton's got no doubt, well, he's no doubt made some enemies in the UK because he's warned about buying British submarines, which apparently, I'm told, is the the inside story from Canberra that uh, that Australia is on the verge of acquiring British astute-class submarines under the AUKUS partnership rather than the American Virginia-class, which uh, those people in the Navy that I'm, I speak to say is a much better option. Now, he was Defence Minister before last year's election. He was very involved in the switch from the French to nuclear subs, and he had this to say. This is the opposition leader, Peter Dutton. The advice to me at the time was very clear that Rolls-Royce didn't have any production capability left, no headroom. Uh, Baron Finesse obviously is uh, landlocked and didn't have the ability to scale up. Mm. Now, he's referring there to the British submarine manufacturer's Rolls-Royce submarines. They are a subsidiary of Rolls-Royce, which operates three sites licensed to handle nuclear material and the BAE system submarines. So what's going on here, Michael? Look, it's uh, one of those fascinating things, and we see it in every portfolio to a certain extent, where a change of government means a certain change of rhetoric. You know, you don't have to turn your mind that far back to remember Peter Dutton talking about the importance of the AUKUS trilateral trilateral agreement. It seems to me if you're genuinely trilateral, you can't throw one of the three parties under a bus, you know, that either this is the kind of solution and the way to go, and, you know, allowing for strengths and weaknesses in individual partners, uh, or it's not. And it seems seems rhetorically convenient now to be uh, furious at the path that's been taken since leaving office. Hmm. Yes, I mean, Rolls-Royce submarines are one of the few shipyards in the world capable of actually building and designing these. But uh, anyway, they, they've constructed all but three of the Royal Navy's nuclear-powered submarines since the commissioning of HMS Dreadnought in 1963. Now, the government's got stuck into the opposition leader, saying irresponsible and mischievous. This is Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy. I think those comments from Peter Dunn are incredibly irresponsible. This was a man who... I received classified briefings up until the 21st of May on this program. He is either uh, being mischievous uh, or he's not privy to the latest information. Well, he's privy to some information, though, isn't he? Isn't he? Look, it, that's right. I mean, it's one thing to say when I was briefed as Defence Minister, I was told that the American model, the Virginia class, was the gold standard, the proven design. That's what mm. we want. But you have to accept that you're, uh, the person who has followed you in the job is probably getting uh, as good information and more up to date at this point. I mean, my problem, and I'm a very simple man, Philip, of mm. simple understandings, but is that so much of this stuff is abstract. You know, the, the idea that, you know, we see the fleet in 30 years and whatever it is, means that uh, it's a huge amount of money for kind of constantly shifting from one contract to another without much clarity about outcome. You know, they're, they're, they're not speedy results that we get to see, which means that the chance to be in a state of high dudgeon as a politician about a decision one way or the other is particularly, uh, particularly strong. Yes, and who knows? Who knows whether in 30 years we've bought the right thing? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the... Uh, I noticed that Minister 
Conroy was commenting on the uh, on the Hunter class frigate deal as well and it's the same thing all over again you know we, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar deal signed more than five years ago and you know whether we ever see the light of day whether the fleet ever makes it to australia um seems kind of a moot point at the moment it's uh, saber rattling and who's got the bigger saber mm. let's talk about robo did i mean we spoke a bit about the robo debt royal commission last night another couple of weeks to go wrap up in a bit in a couple of weeks uh, you've been watching it pretty closely. Have you ever encountered an inquiry like this in your Look, journalistic I'm, career? I'm utterly uh, kind of gobsmacked and appalled by what we're seeing day after day in this inquiry. You know, I, I think the Royal Commission are doing a, a phenomenal job. I think that the, the kind of quality of questioning, the systematic approach to it, uh, the kind of forensic stripping apart of who knew what and when and the failures both of uh, politicians and of the public service is not like anything I remember seeing. But the dispiriting bit is they don't really seem to be landing a blow. You know, as is often no. the case, the inquiry is happening that the relevant party are out of office now, so perhaps it's all a moot point and it's all about some kind of abstract scoreboard. But honestly, the level of government malfeasance that is is uh, being shown day in, day out uh, in this uh, is staggering to mm. me, Philip. Utterly staggering. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's, it's, it's not entirely clear. I mean, I was looking at the evidence today by the chief counsel to the government uh, department responsible, who seems to have admitted that they, uh, I think this is not unfair, they seem to, the, the council, chief counsel seemed to admit that, yeah, they didn't look at it properly, uh, that th- at the beginning, well, <laughs> but it doesn't seem as though that's ever going to have any consequences. And certainly for the ministers responsible, uh, we've, no. seen, we've seen evidence from uh, Christian Porter, we've seen evidence uh you know, from from others too, that that it it doesn't seem that anybody's going to actually suffer any consequences. Just, well, n- neither will the public servants. Well, I mean, this is the thing. You see, people getting new jobs, being appointed to kind of prestigious new positions. If you're Christian Porter or Alan Tudge, your parliamentary career is over at this point, and so you can sit there on the stand and say, "I guess we got it wrong," uh, and do it with relative impunity. The fact that, you know, voices like Stuart Robert can get up there and and essentially confess that when it was told to them the system was unlawful, they chose to double down. Yeah. Well, it's actually, kind of- he, he's I think he's up tomorrow, I think, in the robot, if, um, giving evidence too. Go on. Yeah. Just, you know, the thing that strikes me is you don't have to cast your mind that far back Mm. to find a period of political accountability where this kind of thing, even in opposition, would cost you a shadow cabinet post, it would cost you career advancement, you know, that, that... this level of um, not just a failure to kind of do your duties, but actively maliciously going after vulnerable members of the electorate because they're critics of what you're doing. I mean, it, it is staggering to me. Mm. And it's particularly staggering in a context where, you know, we're seeing, and I, the, you guys have talked about it on the show earlier this week, but, you know, the conversation about the, the changes to superannuation and the, the cry of class warfare. And here we have the most egregious bit of aggressive class warfare that I remember ever seeing in this country. Mm. Yes. I mean, well, Royal Commissions can't send people to jail. We know that anyway. They can recommend that action be taken. I, I, so I suppose, in fairness, we should wait for the Royal Commission's report and see what the Royal Commission 
actually recommend. Uh, but you're right. I think the public is not going to be content to see an inquiry into um, an illegal scheme which hounded people for debts they did not owe and which saw some people take their own life as a result yeah. of that of that uh, harassment. Uh, people will not be happy unless there are people held to account. Look, the testimonies, quite apart from anything else at the Royal Commission, I encourage listeners to, uh, if they haven't had a look, see some of the testimony from victims of the robodebt scheme. It is utterly heartbreaking. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm never a fan of people in media talking about the media and whether it's succeeding or not. But um, one of the things that I found dispiriting is this should be the front page story of every publication in this country at the moment. You know, this is a shameful moment in Australian political history and... I think we need to make sure that we at least understand what went on. Mm. All right. And just finally, you've got a great, fascinating story in the monthly out this week about, uh, about, about a, well, an acclaimed Australian author becoming one of the most prolific literary plagiarists in history. Tell us about the story. I mean, most people wouldn't have heard of this and wouldn't have known about it. So you explain all the background. This is the story of John Hughes. Yeah, look, this is a fascinating story that kind of rolled out last year in the lead-up to the Miles Franklin Award, the country's biggest literary prize, mm. when uh, this author, John Hughes, who had a number of books to his name already, was uh, long-listed for the prize. It was the second time he'd been up for contention for the prize. He's a man with quite an established and respected literary reputation. And just at the shortlisting stage, he got pulled out of contention for the prize because it was discovered that the book in question, a book called The Dogs, had heavily heavily lifted from the work of um, another writer, a Ukrainian writer called uh, Svetlana Alexevich. And, and it was very clear that this was direct plagiarism. So the book was no longer eligible for the prize. A couple of journalists, Anna Verney and Richard Cook, working for The Monthly, uh, started to dig, started to read his other books, started to do comparisons. Uh, amateur literary detectives on Twitter, academics, all kinds of people started kind of digging into this guy's work. And what became clear was, for reasons that are uh, fiendishly hard to understand, John Hughes's career seemed to be built on other people's words. Again and again, not just in The Dogs, but in his earlier work, uh, he had uh, lifted from sources as diverse as uh, Les Murray, uh, Tolstoy, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, that, these weren't minor sources that he was lifting from. Um, and it makes for a fascinating story. It's a real... Uh, Who is he? Where, 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 does he? where does he work? What has he got to say for, uh, what has he got to say for himself? He's, um, look, he chose not to comment for the story. He gave some initial comments when it was called out. Um, and part of what was fascinating and hard to unpick is he told a series of kind of conflicting, mutually contradictory stories. Initially, it was an error with the way he'd taken notes in preparing for his book as more um, plagiarisms were uncovered. Uh, suddenly, it was a literary device, a kind of legitimate tool for honouring previous work in, in the manner of kind of pastiche. Mm. You know, there are, there are lots of debates about this, but there's a, a wonderful, in the in the Verney Cook piece uh, in, in the March issue of the magazine, they have this kind of wonderful reflection that uh, one of the reasons uh, it's taken so long to anyone for anyone to find it is that literary fiction has this kind of very small readership, you know, that it, that it hasn't been found. Because, I mean, most people uh, listening tonight would, not, would never have heard of John Hughes. 
Look, they wouldn't. And the really sad thing is, you know, if I'd been talking to you on your show a bit over 12 months ago, mm. I would have said, look, this is a fascinating book and well worth people's time and attention. I, mm. I was in a book club and it was a book that we did and it was, you know, a mm. fascinating story. But uh, the digging tells us that uh, there's more to the story than meets the eye. And when success and failure are such kind of uh, – such hard categories in Australian art, in anything, you have to ask why someone bothers to uh, to do uh, theft at this scale. It's a, it's a fascinating story. I love it. I love any stories about scammers uh, and grifters. And uh, this story seems somewhat sadder and more complicated, um, but all the more fun for it. So what's happened? Is the pub- has his publisher canned, canned any association with him? No, his publisher is standing by him, although uh, his books are very difficult to lay uh, your hands on at the moment. Mm. There are various other authors in their estates that are kind of uh, unhappily making claims and asking that the the books be kept off the shelves. And so what we have is this kind of story about kind of literary appropriation, Um, but also, and one of the points that's made in the piece that I think is really fascinating is there's something a bit of the throwback about it. To a certain extent, his books are so cobbled together by other sources. Hmm. This could be the first AI-generated novel that we've ever seen. <laughs> Here we go. That's right. All right, Michael, fascinating. We'll look out for it. Thank you. So much fun. Great to chat, You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.